0: This is Inspiring Scientists with me, Dr Kylie Matchett, the podcast where I talk to brilliant scientists about their careers. Before we come on to today's guest, first let's hear from Elaine Emerson, who was our first guest on Inspiring Scientists, with advice for those thinking about their next career steps.
1: So I'm Elaine Emerson, and I'm a PI at the Centre for Regenerative Medicine at the University of Edinburgh. And we're looking at ways to regenerate the salivary glands after radiotherapy for head and neck cancer my advice to PhD students thinking about um, maybe the next stage in their career is to I guess always be open to uh, new ideas and things that one could explore that would be um, a kind of a new a new um, area to explore and, and kind of opening up your own niche. So I think it's really important to always be thinking of what could you explore that would be new and novel? And how could you make that your own? So always have that in the back of your mind when you're talking to other scientists, um, going to talks, um, how could this fit into my work and would it make something really exciting and really interesting?
0: Thanks, Elaine, for that fantastic advice. I think that's applicable to those at all career stages, not just PhD students, and also leads me nicely on to my next guest. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Lara Campana, who was a postdoc at the University of Edinburgh, but who is now Director of Macrophage Biology and co-founder of a spin-out company, Resolution Therapeutics. She was recently named among the top 50 female entrepreneurs to watch in 2021 and beyond by Bohurst, the leading UK startups database. I'm really excited to hear Lara's experience of this transition from academia to industry and what led her to this opportunity. So welcome Dr. Lara Campana to Inspiring Scientists. Uh, it's really nice to have you here. You're currently director of macrophage biology at Resolution Therapeutics and co-founder as well, um, which is very exciting. And, and you've made this transition from academic science into industry science, but you know, not even just industry, it's your own spin-out company from industry. So it's really excited to, to have you on Inspiring Scientists just to hear about your, your journey through science. And where I'd really like to start initially is maybe just um, where you did your undergrad and master's and PhD and what took you into science from from
2: there. So welcome. Thank you very much, Kylie. Thank you very much for having me. And hello to everyone. Um, Yeah, so well, I've I've always been a bit of a a geek, really, even in school. and, And I was always fascinated by the natural world in general like apparently when I was little I was asking for books on you know human evolution and like weird things instead of asking for dolls so, so I, I suppose it was always a bit there but really I think what prompted me was my biology teacher in high school um, she was absolutely brilliant she was having us doing a lot of lab work and I really discovered that I really wanted to do it I wanted to some to do something that had to do with being in a laboratory and uh, like for me the decisive the Time was a time in which we did like this chemistry experiment, and uh, apparently there were all these colors that we had to to generate, but we weren't able to generate them, and we had to do a bit of problem solving, and uh, then we solved the problem, and I found it incredibly thrilling, and I decided, okay, that's that's what I want to do. Um, But I come from a very small town, um, so my town is about ten thousand inhabitants and uh, my mom and dad never went to high to to to, to university my dad didn't even make to high school so i didn't have quite an idea how to become a scientist but i found quite a lot of help in school fortunately and i decided to enroll in a, a medical biotechnology course which at the time was really groundbreaking because we had a lot of lab activities but we also had a lot of uh, uh, shared teachers with the medical school for the first three years so we got really good foundation both in the clinical aspect of uh, human uh, biology and physiology and also on the kind of laboratory practical side and that was at the Vita of the university in milan which was a huge change for me like coming from a small place to like a big city it was super exciting of course and I mean when
0: as well you're because you know you went to uni up in Milan but I think you're down from quite far south in Italy aren't you so as well it's <coughs> that's
2: kind of more in the middle and uh, kind of like a kind of the very west part like we are right at the border with France literally 50 minutes away from my house that's the border with France so and yeah, it was was really different, like no sea, um, no mountains, um, and lots of concrete, but also very exciting because, of course, when you're 19 and you're in a university city with lots of other university students, you stay in a university accommodation. That's super, super cool. And uh, then after my bachelor, I moved to a master in medical and molecular biotechnology at the same Vitas de Sarafere University. I really enjoyed uh, uh, my master because we had an entire year in a lab. So it was a two-year master: one year were more courses and more kind of traditional university teaching, and one was entirely in the lab, following your own project. So that was super exciting, of course. And um, uh, and then uh, that prompted me to seek to do a PhD because I, I at the time I really wanted to stay in academia and. Uh, because I was, you know, working uh, in a quite traditional environment, uh, I wanted to kind of open my horizon a little, so I decided to do an international PhD. I was always based in Milan, but we were enrolled with the open university as well. Because for some reason, one of my other fixations about about my life, besides science, was to come and live in the UK. I don't know why, but I always had this idea that I wanted to live in the UK at some point.
0: Did you ever, as a, as a high school student, do the... You know quite often you'll have students from Italy and Spain coming to the UK to do uh yeah. sort of you know hello English holidays or something like that. Did you do something like that? And that's where you first got your taste for Britain from? I
2: think so. Well it was it was before then because apparently again I was little I was watching Mary Poppins and I was saying that I wanted to live in a town that had the chimneys like the chimneys of Mary Poppins. Um, but yeah, so I came from a few, for a few holidays. And actually the first one was knowing the UK, was in Ireland, was in Dublin. And then I came to London the following years and I just literally fell in love. Like 16-year-old from a small town in London is just like, yeah, being high on life on the time. I just like, yeah, I'm brilliant. So yeah. And uh, yeah, and then after the PhD, I had to decide what to do, uh, read for real. For now, there was a real question, what do you want to do with your life? And I really wanted to do science. I I mean, I've always been really passionate and particularly I'm really passionate and I developed this passion through my master, my PhD about the role of the immune system in tissue repair Mm -hmm. because I thought could have been an incredibly uh, powerful tool in the future that I could see being underexploited at the time. And particularly I fell in love very quickly with these cells called the macrophages. So I really um, wanted to find a place where I could foster d- this passion. And uh, my uh, second supervisor during my PhD suggested me to try Edinburgh. It was like, it's possibly one of the best place where you can study these things. There's incredibly good critical mass of scientists there. You should really try and get yourself there. And, and so I did, and I landed here for my postdoc in 2013.
0: So so when you were looking for a lab, did you come and visit the labs or did you sort of have a lab in mind or?
2: Yeah, so speaking with my second supervisor, actually, he suggested, uh, um, he had a collaboration with people in CIR before, so he worked um, with people like Ian Dransfield, uh, um, and uh, he suggested to look at the department, and that's how I got in contact with uh, Professor John Iredale. And I just wrote him an email and I think that's one of the pieces of advice I would have, like just be bold and write people because people in science are nice. And usually, unless they they really can't accommodate your request, they will try to at least have a conversation with you. Um, So I first had a conversation on the phone with John, um, which uh, was mostly in that understanding what i wanted to do where my scientific interest and whether there could have been some possibility for me to to go to his lab and move to his lab to to carry out my research and uh, uh, then uh, he invited me for a talk so i was invited in edinburgh and that was just before my viva which was incredibly good because i could practice basically my viva talk Uh, and
0: you were he invited you to come over from Italy to Edinburgh to give a talk, which you're saying is essentially your VIVA talk, but was that to the, the CIR?
2: Yes. Yeah, so so was it
0: sort of the Friday PhD ones or was it the main seminar ones?
2: Um, no, it was mostly something that he organized for his lab and the kind of liver group. So there were a few people that studied liver Uh, from various laboratories and uh, there were a couple of PIs that also worked in the levers and collaborated with 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 John at the time and we were in the big auditorium yeah it must have felt quite daunting yeah I mean I was I came in I was like what are you not expecting it Um, John Adler's postdoc was also very helpful at the time. Antonella, and she's also Italian, and so she could guide me. And uh, um, you know, she helped me with setting up my computer. And she was like, "Don't worry, everyone's really formal. Everyone's really nice, so don't worry." I was I was a bit nervous, um, of course, and but I delivered my talk. Yeah, it went really well. And then from there, we started to try and find ways in which I could have joined. Uh, we applied for some fellowship, which I didn't get, because that's just the life of a scientist. You write lots of things and 99% you don't get them. And uh, and when then it, when you were writing them, were you based in Edinburgh or were you still writing? No, I was still in Italy. Yeah. Yeah. So I was still finishing because um I discussed, so I defended my vibe in April of 2012, uh, but then I had all the correction and things. And then I had to finish a few experiments for my main paper. And so I could only be it December 2012. So um, yeah, in that time, we were trying to find solutions. And then over the summer, uh, John got uh, a big program grant from the MRC. And he had money for some postdocs. So he opened a call. I applied through the normal channel you would apply for the university. So I submitted my CV and then I came and did an interview. And um and then I got it. And I, I just remember the day in which I opened I, I received the email. I saw the email and I turned around, I was in Italy in my lab and I was running a Western blot. And I turned around, I was like, guys, I needed to load the Western blot before I open this email or this Western blot will never be loaded whatever the outcome of the email is. And so I loaded the Western blot and then I <laughs> opened the email. And, yeah. and then, yeah, and we, we had a massive uh, cheer, collective cheer it was before social distancing. So we all hugged and yeah, it was a really nice feeling.
0: That sounds really lovely, really nice. Yeah. And it's nice that you were able to to visit the lab and and interact with Antonella, your sort of kind of postdoc mentor supervisor while you came over here. So I guess it wasn't too scary a transition from your lab in Italy to coming to Edinburgh? I
2: think the lab was the thing that scared me the less. A bit because I was quite um, confident about my ability as a scientist. My PhD has not been easy. And... I went through it mm-hmm. Um I, I was quite confident on that side and I, I really must say that um, everyone in CIR really made a good job of making me feel comfortable. Um was a bit of a shock on uh, the kind of organizational research, like Italy is not a very rich country research wise. So I was used to prepare like all my buffer, do everything myself. I didn't have a technician for my animals. So I was breeding my animals, cleaning my cages and things like that. And, and arrived here. So the organization of the research and the pace of the research was really like what, what was probably the thing that was most difficult to get used to.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And together with a kind of different perception of hierarchy, like Italy is very hierarchical, so I would always call my professor professor, and I would treat him with like that kind of uh, um, mentor mentee distance. And I would use the polite form. In Italy, we have two form of uh, addressing people: the kind of informal you and the formal you. And I would always do the formal. And and John was like, "Oh, hi! You can call me John." And I was like, "What?" <laughs> and that was very very different. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, apart from, it was more cultural, I would say, the, the scientific, if you will. Um, and yeah, and the Scottish accent was the, the, the biggest shock, I must say. <laughs> I, I spent the first three months not really smiling to everyone, but not really understanding what they were telling me. <laughs> Fair
0: enough. And I guess everyone speaks quite fast as well. And it'll be the same for any English person going to Italy and, and speaking Italian, trying to you know, uh, converse in Italian with Italian people. So.
2: Yeah, I mean, for example, I never had any problem with John, because uh, his English was so pristine, um, and also with, with other people, but I think, you know, as a foreigner, when you learn English, you really learn it out of an audio, well, at the time it was an audio cassette, now probably is, I don't know, some fancy videos, but it was an audio cassette, and there was this woman or man speaking this, like, perfect, you know, English accent, and and that's what you use, you get used to. Yeah. Or at most like some American accent when you watch movies or series. But really some of the Scottish or Northern English or Irish accent for me was just like mystery. Like I literally, like the first few months I was just like,
0: "No, sorry. <laughs> no, fair enough. And so you stayed in John's lab for your five year postdoc, um, but then part the way, or maybe two thirds of the way through it, John moved role um, to take, he moved to take up a position at a university in Bristol, but you were able to, did you, did you offer you the choice of coming down with him or was he always going to finish his, his research project up here and and you were going to stay here?
2: Yeah, it was always about finishing the project up here really, um, because John took up a more kind of managerial academic position as vice chancellor, so he wasn't planning on having a laboratory down in Bristol. Which I wouldn't have minded, by the way, because it's a lovely city. I went a few times visiting him, so as it's, it's a really nice city. Um, but yeah, so the 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 option was always to stay here, and um, I ended up working in Stuart Forbes' lab, mm-hmm. and that was in twenty sixteen. So it's kind of halfway, really, my postdoc probably. Um, and uh, yeah, so I moved to to, to Stuart's lab uh, in in twenty sixteen, and I carried out my experiment there. Yeah. yeah.
0: So then leading up to the the point of John leaving, was there a lot of crosstalk between John and Stuart about your project and and you would have joint meetings together to help kind of shift the project management over to Stuart more or was John still managing it but from afar a little bit?
2: Um, So at the time, uh, John and Stuart uh, um, had uh, the funding on which I was working together. So that was like a MRC program grant. And so there was always a level of collaboration and the degree of interaction. Um, I was also uh, working with someone in, in Stuart's lab who had also a program on macrophages. So we were kind of already used to have a collaboration. So that seemed a more natural kind of passage because Stuart was already familiar with the project and he was already interested in the project. So. Um, yeah, that seemed the most natural way of of finishing it, rather than you know uprooting the project and uh, you know handling it over a complete different third party person.
0: So it sound quite nice and kind of seamless in some ways, and it just sort of you know, John dropped off the radar a little bit, and and Stuart maybe took up more of the reins. about yeah. it. but but maybe too you maybe had more space to lead it yourself with only yeah
2: supervisor around. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that I think I think I. I was scared of that at the beginning. It felt a bit unsettling because, um, you know, during my first part of my postdoc, I was still quite led doing my things. So that felt a bit like jumping into the void. But uh, I also ended up enjoying it. I realized I really thrived in that. And I didn't know that. I wouldn't have known up if that didn't happen. I really thrived in that situation. And I started, I mean, Stuart's Lab is an incredibly exciting place where to be lots of different uh, skill set and interests and huge amount of opportunity to collaborate and to develop your own thinking. So for me that was yeah an unexpected blessing. I I really thrived in 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 that situation.
0: I guess that's the thing that you know postdocs maybe depending on the route that you take your with your postdoc, it's a hard skill to get the space to learn, isn't it, as you say, because you're you're generally coming onto someone's research grant. They're the ones who really have the ideas and want to drive it. Uh, And so for a postdoc finding a space to be able to drive and push your own research. I mean, I think good supervisors will always give postdocs that space, isn't it, to sort of grow and develop and learn.
2: Yeah, I mean, John always gave me a lot of space, but probably it was me that I was not fully ready to take it. I, you know, like I think you also learn on the job in a way, and the more you are in an institution, the more you learn how the institution work, who are the people that you can talk to to do things, and. And I suspected that that happened at the right time. That was the kick that I needed. So John leaving for me was kind of the kick that I needed to fully take a full intellectual ownership of what I was doing. Uh, and yeah, just just really put my my own uh, thinking and ideas into it. So I think it was just more of a combination of factors really
0: yeah and yeah you, you couldn't ascribe one particular thing to to having that mental switch to sort of taking more as you put it, intellectual ownership of of your research
2: yeah i, th- I think uh, i think it happens for i mean i spoke i speak to scientists every day and i think that happens for everyone that at some point there's something that clicks and is a combination of factors is maybe an environment environment change or a project change or a, the fact that you don't have funding and you're forced to move, or you know, there's something that happens that's a trigger that initially seems to hinder your 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 progress and slow you down, and probably does for a little bit, but then really allows you to, to thrive and finds your space and your niche and what you really want to do. And is uncomfortable to start with. It's very uncomfortable because when your boss tells you, "I'm leaving." It's not easy and and these unsettling but actually that is what what prompts that kind of switch I think in your mind and then and then you have that gear switch I mm-hmm.
0: think mm-hmm. no that's, yeah. that's a yeah really lovely way of putting it and and I think it's something that isn't talked about too much in science having that switch from dependence and and kind of needing to be led and kind of um, motivated by your PI and other people around you to then becoming a lot more independent but still obviously having to to work with other people and that really nicely leads on to to what you're doing now having developed the spin out company so that's I guess off the back of the work that you developed in first in Johns and then with with sort of Stuart's and your supervision so so tell me about that very
2: exciting how did yeah, that all- so that's, that's that's a very exciting part so at some point uh you know the program ran, a grant ran out and uh there had to be a decision about you know what i wanted to do and Stuart ca- came up to me saying look i'm starting this collaboration with this um funders uh, in uh, in london they may be interested in funding a company eventually but our technology is too immature at the moment and we really need a good macrophage biology to to work on this project we will hire two more postdocs but we need to start this project on the 1st of march of 2018 and uh, um i was wondering whether you may be interested and that was completely out of the blue this was not what i planned so i planned of applying to a a regular fellowship or something to try and start having my own independence group but the paper was not ready yet the my publication record was not quite up to scratch to to be competitive in such an application so my idea was well maybe i can write a smaller funding and get funds for maybe a year publish the paper and then apply for this fellowship and when this opportunity came it i just seemed too good to say no um I've been working on macrophages since 2006, when I started my, my undergrad thesis. And that was basically telling me, um, you may have the opportunity, as a postdoc, you won't be a PI, but as a postdoc, to develop this into a therapy. At the same time, I knew that we had the clinical trial phase one with the first version of this product on inpatient, and looked like it was safe, it looked like it was going well so i was like oh my god this is too good to say no and mm-hmm. um, wasn't what i planned um but i said yes mm-hmm. yes um, I, I i'm happy to do this yeah
0: and was that a fixed term initially Yeah.
2: yeah so this was for two years initially uh, so that had to lead up to March 2020, and then we would have decided whether, to, based on the results, there were three main milestones, and if we met them, uh, the results would have been evaluated, and then we would have, uh, you know, carried on forming forming this company. Mm-hmm. And, and I would never thank Stuart enough for having given me this opportunity and trusting me with this, because for him this was a huge thing. Stuart has been working on bringing macrophages. To the clinic to treat liver diseases since 2010 so th- since i was in my first year of my phd basically and so he entrusted me with that and i will never never thank him enough and uh, he's no more my boss so i can say it you know it's not to praise my boss really <laughs> It really is, is 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 real it's true and it was exciting it's a super exciting ride i started working with his other steward uh, postdoc in steward's lab Ben. And then a third postdoc from the field joined. The field was developing something for acute liver injury. We were working more on the chronic and super exciting ride With the, we improved the way we produce the macrophages. We developed various uh, protocols um, to, to, to make of this product a better product. Uh, we patented them. I never had a patent before. And all of a sudden uh, I, I had my name on an invention, which was like something incredibly exciting. Um, But we all know what happened in March 2020, Um, so the global pandemic hit, so it didn't seem utterly wise, uh, um, you know, starting a company in the uh, middle of lockdowns and maybe with some experiments still to do, etc. And so the foundation of the company ended up being delayed to August 2020. And and we started as just a small, very lean operational um, unit. Uh, One of the postdocs decided to leave for other reasons. So, two of us carried on, and we basically just started doing the basics hiring people, you know, set up a lab buy stuff to put in spaces uh, uh you know clean the spaces that you know were were left behind uh, um by other people so yeah so it was uh just really literally doing the basics and then from january 2021 that's when we started having our own people in managing our own people doing our own science and so yeah how are you finding
0: that transition then from uh postdoc leading your own research project, then developing the kind of foundling of this company in, in a way. Um, and now it almost feels like it's quite a leap to very much managing and directing other people. So I guess you've, you've essentially become a group leader mm-hmm. but in, in an industry fashion. And, and how are you finding that sort of shift in roles and mindset? And yeah.
2: So, there are various aspects here. So, Stuart and, and John Campbell from SMBTS are the senior funders of the company, and then Phil and Dara kind of more Junior. And we are directing our own small research group within the company. And uh, I think there are various aspects to it. First is the fact that, uh, you know, if you have an idea and you want to test it, you don't have your boss anymore that gives you their blessing and says, yes, you can go ahead and do it. So, you just have to take the courage to say, okay, I think that this will lead us to develop a technology A, B, and C, which will help us meet the, the milestone that we have for end of May 2021, for example, and I'm just going to test it. And I'm organizing my group, I'm talking to my people, and I'm trying to organize experiments at a higher level, and, and you kind of learn, um, I don't know how to describe it, it's just more like learning progressively how to trust the fact that there are other people you train the people and once you train them you have to trust them doing the experiment the right way
0: yeah and trusting them when you're looking at all the results that it all yeah. together yeah
2: when we are at a lab meeting and you look at the results you you have to trust the results you look at because you train those people you've been in the lab I st- i'm still in the lab i probably spend about of my time still doing things but now I'm at that funny stage in which when I do things I actually make sure that I know where things are in the lab because it's no more me organizing the lab spaces I'm like okay guys make sure if you want me to do this that you know you know I know where the plates are where the pipettes are because I may not know
0: it back to being a a kind of summer project student (laughs) but with all the knowledge of knowing how to work in the lab but just not knowing where everything is
2: yeah, exactly. That is as, as um, that is an interesting experience, and I think I'm still settling in that mindset. I think I'm still learning how to do it. Mm-hmm. As a manager, you yes, also have to, you know, have a feeling for how the group's working, how the um, people are interacting, how the various uh, units and department within this, this small startup are interacting. Because starting a small startup in the middle of a global pandemic and during at the start, at the onset of Brexit, it was not easy. It was a kind of mad thing to do, but it was also exciting. And I'm super happy that we did it. And I think one of the things that no one teaches you and no one can prepare you for is really this day-to-day problem solving and uh, learning on the ground how to interact with your team. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, you devise a strategy. You have to think about, you know, how do I make this happen? Like you're told. You have to make this happen and you have to devise the whole strategy yourself but it's not only yourself it's you in relationship with other departments that will pass material on to you or or, or to whom you have to re, uh, report for because they need your data to further develop their technology so it's a, it's kind of an interesting learning on the ground about how this type of interaction happens and and i I'm learning that uh, good science is good science everywhere. Mm-hmm. So it's not because you move to industry that you stop being a scientist. I think there is this myth and in, in academia. I've been in academia for a long time and up until a few months ago I was an academic. And mm-hmm. and I think lots of the time, especially older people, think, okay, if you move to the private sector, it's almost like you failed in your career because you didn't get a tenure track. And and I think it's absolutely not true. And for me, this myth was busted when I started this experience because we are doing groundbreaking science. Really cutting-edge technologies being used, and it's just a bit more focused. You have a focus. You have milestones. You have a certain type of organization that is more is a stricter than the organization you have in academia, where you can write your result on the back of a glove and then hoping that when you slot him into the pages of the lab book you don't lose it the next time you run around doing your experiments it's just a bit more um kind of i don't know how to say about yeah
0: regulated i
2: guess yeah there are more there's more attention on this type of aspect of the job but good science is good science everywhere and and the science we are doing really excites me so yeah
0: And like you say, having had the passion for macrophages from very, very early on in your scientific career, it's exciting that you've now been able to build it to a point where you can start thinking about very much translational therapies for it all. Super exciting. And so what what do you think you have learned in your new role that you wish you'd known when you were a, a postdoc? Was it that sort of people management or interacting with other people or...?
2: courses that I've done that kind of prepared a bit for you know people's management and how to think about yourself and you know I've learned quite a lot about self-reflective practices I've, I've done quite a few training for teaching and that kind of really helped me is a is is a kind of soft skills that I learned through teaching that I'm really recycling heavily in uh, training my staff and uh, developing positive relationship with them and especially the giving feedback part that you learn when you develop as a, a teacher in academia that is, is to me very very important and is serving me really really well at the moment
0: and so is that you're referring to uh when you were doing your phd you did a a year of teaching there didn't you did sort of lectures every week and then you built it into an exam is that is that right is that the teaching that you're reading?
2: Yeah. So during my postdoc, I did that. So I was working with a medical school and I was delivering uh, um, tutorials for uh, second year medical students. And I was also doing the odd occasional lecture um, for the inflammation, uh, um and immunology and inflammation course for the third year. Um, but I think with clinical science students. Um, so I had a few experiences here and there, but particularly the one I did with the medical school in which I was delivering tutorials and working like also to coordinate some of the tutors. And I think that's really some soft skills that I learned that may not seem directly related, but I'm like have as an experience I have I'm having in tapping into currently, you know, to 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 learn how to do my job at the moment. Mm-hmm. I think the thing I wish I knew is that uh, it's okay to kind of tell your people, you know, I don't know something. Mm-hmm. Like I've, I've, I'm I've, experiencing that there is something really powerful about when you talk to your team saying, being very honest about things and saying, look, I don't have the answer for you. Um, I, I don't know about this. I need to read about this. You read about this. We all read about this. And then we come back and next week at our meeting and we discuss this and we decide what we do about this. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the beginning, I felt really, insecure doing it I was almost feeling like oh I, I'm not being a good leader because I should know these things and um, massive imposter syndrome but then I think what I learned is actually my team really respected me for this mm-hmm. I, I really had very positive feedback for them saying I really like that because I really enjoyed having this um, scientific discussion with you and the way you guided me in the scientific. Uh, Discussion and and I wish someone told me, you know, like when you lead people, you can't say that you don't know things. And is uh, I think uh, very often also, especially in education, I think I think maybe I should have learned by the time I was the end of the, my postdoc. I don't know, but one of the things I'm learning now is that there is something very liberating about uh, a saying I don't know, but also saying I got it wrong, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I'm. And I feel it's very empowering for for you when you say that, but also for the people you work with, because they learn that uh, this is an okay thing to do. And actually, if we all do it, we all force each other to um, have better ideas and discuss more ideas and, um, and maybe design a better experiment or even get to know something we didn't know before. So, yeah, so I think that's the aspect. It's more like a kind of, perception of self as a leader that is something that is you know no one teaches you and maybe it's not something that can be taught I don't know but uh, it's something I, think, I wish I knew
0: <laughs> I think that's really important you're right and it's it's maybe something as you say in, in education and science we feel like we always have to have the answers We should always know what you know we should know everything and especially if we're you know a postdoc then we should know more than the PhD students and then as it goes up but realizing that actually it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to say, I don't know, we need to have a read. Let's, you know, both have a read and sit down and think about and discuss it all. And, and as you're saying, it, it makes for much more fun and much more rich science, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, no, it does. It really does. And and I think it also sets a bit of an example, right, for the un- more junior people that work with you, because then, you know, if my boss does it, then that must be something that is okay to do. So I can do it. So when my research scientist approaches the research associate she has the same kind of attitude because she knows that she, I do it with her so she can do it with the research associate and I think that is really fostering a positive, positive relationships and you know for example one of my research associates he knows buckets about preparing plasmids and the last time I prepared plasmid that was when I was in my undergrad so sometimes you just sit down and i i ask him okay explain what you're doing because i was doing a b and c but that was created 14 years ago so i'm sure what you're doing is much more advanced and explain me why you do it so i can understand because i do have the intellectual tools to understand it and and i think that also empowers people to be very um you know to own their own um uh knowledge and and to to kind of you know, empowering them to share it uh, and uh, even if he's a trusted and I'm um, the, the PI it's, it's fine for him to come to me and saying Lara you should need about you should read about this because that can be important for us that, that's okay to do it I, I'm happy to read about it and learn more about it mm-hmm.
0: so yeah nice, very exciting and then you were saying before about having this bit of imposter syndrome at the start just as you're finding your feet in the in the field and what do you think um, helped you push past that? And do you think you're past that now or do you still sometimes have elements of that?
2: Um, I think the imposter syndrome is something that's, I don't know, I think almost is uh, embedded in the science science practice because uh, we're always uh, trained about doubting ourselves and what we do and be very critical about what we do that then we start applying the same i mean but ourselves as people and uh, i think uh, this is kind of embedded in the way a scientist thinks so i don't think i will ever be over the imposter syndrome but the thing that is very different between now and when i was a phd is that a i have a name for it Because when I was a PhD, I had this feeling But up until I started my postdoc and I went on a course and someone talked to me about imposter syndrome, I couldn't name what I was feeling and was incredibly upsetting feeling that I was not good enough.
0: Mm
2: And I think that once you give a name to it, that's the first step. Mm-hmm. Once I started giving a name to it, then I started also knowing when it was coming and uh, what were the triggers. So that's the second step. During my postdoc, I think I became really good at knowing, oh no, now I'm gonna feel so inadequate here. And I knew it was coming, so I was kind of prepared. So I wasn't feeling upset about it. I it's not real because mm-hmm. the imposter syndrome is simply, you not knowing something, which is basically just being a human so because unless you're a unless you're google and i'm sure also google doesn't know certain things um you don't know everything you can't know everything you don't have the cpu in your brain to know everything so imposter syndrome is just uh, another way and uh, now what i know is that when it comes i accept it and uh, um I can, the way I go over it is by remembering what our CEO always tells us. And that for me is a massive help. He's he's a fantastic mentor. And he always tells us, it's okay to get it wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, it's okay to get it wrong. It's not okay to keep getting the same thing wrong, because then probably (laughs) you're not caring about what you do. If you get it wrong, we all learn from it. Mm -hmm. And it's fine. So when my imposter syndrome comes, I'm like, okay, this means I'm feeling that I need to know more about this. Is okay if I don't know about this, what I can do to make me feel better about this. Mm -hmm. And we we usually do something to either improve what you do or or learn more or, and so yes, I think now I manage the imposter syndrome fully. Um, I don't think you will ever not be there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think every time there is a challenge, you will uh, doubt yourself because as I said, I think we are very hardwired as scientists to do it. Um, yeah, I think that's a really nice way to,
0: to think of it and put it is that maybe it's not actually imposter syndrome. It's just the feeling that you get when you don't know something, but you can cure that feeling by doing some reading or some listening or, or speaking to someone. That's yeah, to look at. And,
2: yeah, and I think it's just normal to have it because as I said, I think what we're trained to do, we're trained to be critical to our data day in, day out. And at some point we get hardwired to doubt everything we do. Which can also be related to managing people or to deliver a talk, or whatever, because that's become so so ingrained into you. That's what what then you do, and cool. and I think is mm-hmm. almost we have to accept that happens and just you know find the way we cope best with it.
0: Oh, that's been a really lovely talk lara thank you very very much for your time it's been wonderful hearing about your experiences coming through science and and the excitement of, of where you are now so thank you very much
2: yeah no worries And um, yeah i think one of the things for me is more exciting on doing things like that is also to show that uh, you know sometimes you just need to get the opportunities that uh, are offered to you um this was never my plan um Becoming a, a PI in a small spin-off company was never on the cards. Um, but it's actually um, probably the best thing I've done, the best choice I made. And I'm thriving in this role. I'm enjoying myself. I I go to work every day being super excited about what I'm about to do. And um, so yeah, so maybe if I didn't say yes to steer to that. Opportunity that would have never come about. So sometimes saying yes is, is a good thing. Yeah, having the confidence
0: and the, the, not the confidence, but the courage, the courage yeah. to say yes and take the leap. And yeah, and like you say, you never know where you're going to end up. Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. Exactly. Thank yeah. you very much. No worries. Thank you very much.
0: Lara has such infectious enthusiasm for her work and science in general, and it was such fun talking with her. One thing I'd like to highlight is Lara's mention of imposter syndrome, the feeling that one doesn't belong or deserve their success and they will be discovered as a fraud. It's important to realise that it's normal to have those feelings, everyone has them to a lesser or greater degree, and it's just a matter of finding a way to overcome them, so they don't hold you back from doing great things. Thank you for listening to this podcast, please do leave a review on your podcast platform, or if there is an inspiring scientist you'd like to hear from, get in touch with me on Twitter, at Matchett. Join me next time on Inspiring Scientists when I speak with Vanessa Cuddyford, who is a TEDx speaker coach and founder of Present, Perform, Persuade, helping people overcome their public speaking nerves and become confident speakers. And while Vanessa Cuddyford is not a scientist herself, she works with scientists to help them communicate their work in a more engaging and persuasive manner. I'm really looking forward to hearing her tips and advice. Music for this podcast was provided by thepodcasthost.com and Alatu, the podcast maker. Find your own free podcast music over at thepodcasthost.com forward slash free music.